0: All right. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Wow, that was good. Um, yeah, good morning. Thank you for, for being here. Uh, in case you don't know me, I'm JJ. I'm just one of the family members here. Um, yeah, by God's grace, I get to come this morning and proclaim the Word of God to you, proclaim the gospel and the truths of it. So we're going to be looking mostly at chapter 8 of Hebrews. So if you guys want to go ahead and get there. That's where we'll be. Over the, the last 25 years, though, uh, I wanted to tell you guys that technology has, uh, has rapidly changed. It's, it's been advancing and advancing. Um, and jokingly, I'm going to date myself a little here. Um, <laughs> because I can remember when I was a kid and uh, our entire family had just one immovable computer that sat in our living room. Uh, you couldn't take it anywhere, uh, and you could hardly even play games on it. It was so terrible. Uh, but the main point of that computer was so that my dad, when he uh, came home from work, he could use it to you know, continue working if something was really busy or uh, whatnot. But the way that he would bring work home with him in, in those days, back in those days, uh, he would bring these things called floppy disks with him. You guys know what those are? Okay, I hear you guys. Okay. So if you don't know what those are, um, they're basically just like a thin square piece of plastic that you could save files on and you could you know, move things from one place to another since you couldn't move your computer. Um, so, you know, back then... That seemed really helpful, and and it was. Uh, When computers were immovable and when they used less data, floppy disks were great. They served a a good purpose. But there are several reasons now that most people born after the year 2000 have no idea what a floppy disk even is. Um, And to keep it simple, we'll just say that floppy disks became obsolete. As newer and better things came about, floppy disks faded out of use, and nearly out of memory. Uh, catch a joke there? Um, so, you know, today... Sorry, yeah, I'm cheesy, sorry. Uh, today, we've gotten so far from floppy disks that my phone, by itself, that I can take anywhere, can hold like 45,000 floppy disks' worth of data. So they have now truly become obsolete. With that being said, if I told you today... That after knowing all of that, that I was, you know, considering, really considering going back to using floppy disks. You'd probably think there was something wrong with me, right? You'd think I was crazy. That's because we don't return to things that are obsolete and that are fading away. We move forward with the new and the better. As we read our passage today, what we're going to see is that the author of Hebrews is going to make that same argument. Today we'll see that through the gospel, God has provided us a great high priest who mediates a new covenant so that we may leave the obsolete things behind. I'll say that again for for those of you taking notes. Uh, Through the gospel, God has provided us a great high priest who mediates a new covenant so that we may leave the obsolete things behind. We're going to see that uh, in really three sections of this text. Um, The first section, verses 1 and 2, we'll see a quick summary of Christ's priesthood and duties. Uh, In verses 3 through 5, we're going to see a foreshadowing of heavenly things. And then finally, the the last section, verses 6 through 13, uh, we will see the new covenant promises. So without further ado, let's jump in and let's read chapter 8 chapter 8 verse 1 it says here now the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not man for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, for each one or, or and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Father, God, you have given us a great high priest. Lord, you have done a work that we could not do. You have reconciled man to yourself when we could not, when we could not do enough to get there. God, we could not be good enough. We could not keep your law. But we we know that we are sinners. We see that you have provided the, the answer to our sin. We thank you, God, for the promises of the new covenant, Lord. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear uh, the truths of what that means for us. Be with our hearts, Lord. Help this, this word to fall on soft ground. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Now, as we heard in past weeks, the, the whole point of Hebrews, uh, well, I guess the author of Hebrews, is writing this letter to a Jewish community of believers. Uh, and it seems that some of these believers, you know, may be facing persecution, but they're considering returning to Judaism. There, there's some word of that. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this whole thing to encourage them to hold fast to the confession that Christ is Lord, that he is Savior, and encouraging them just not to return to the things that are fading away. Uh, through the first seven chapters, our author has been laying out a series of arguments and uh, a series of warnings that are foundational uh, so that these Jew- Jewish believers don't abandon the faith, so that they don't turn back. Uh, and to paraphrase a few of these arguments, uh, they've been things like, hey, you really want a priest? Well, did I mention that Jesus is actually a high priest? Or uh, I heard you like Moses. You know, uh, did I mention that Jesus is better than Moses? Um, now, in all seriousness, the, the arguments that he's made so far have been beautiful, and he's crafted them well, and, and they've all been founded on the Word of God. And In every way, they, they have made much of Christ's name. This brings us now to chapter 8, where uh, we see verse 1 and 2, just the recalling of these arguments, or a, a few specific ones at least. Um, so our, our first section is the summary of Christ's priesthood, and duties in verses 1 and 2. As we turn our eyes back to the beginning of our passage, what we're going to find is that the author opens the first two verses with a recap. Um, And starting in verse 1, we see that he begins by acknowledging that he is coming to a sort of climax in this explanation. Uh, In verse 1, he tells us straight up that he's about to give us the, the main point behind all that he's about to say. So let's see what he says. If we read verses 1 and 2 again, it says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So we see that the author first calls to remembrance his argument that Christ is our high priest. This was first explicitly mentioned all the way back in chapter 2, verse 17, and it's been built upon all the way through chapter 7 and up to now. Uh, we learned that Jesus is our high priest of a new kind last week. He, he's a high priest of the order of uh, Melchizedek. Uh, we learned that in Jimmy's sermon uh, last week, as I said. And then in chapters 2 through 5, we saw that Jesus... Though he's a high priest, he, he was beset with weakness, just like us humans. He, he was beset with weakness, but yet he didn't sin. And because of that, that made him both able to sympathize with our weaknesses as a high priest and able to perfectly bridge the gap between God and man. So Christ being our high priest, we're going to find out, is, is the main point of all of this. And everything mentioned after unfolds out of this reality that he is our high priest. Uh, if we look again at our text, we'll see, we're going to see that the second thing that the author brings to mind is that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father's throne in heaven. This truth uh, came from actually chapter 1, in verses 3 and verses 13. Uh, it said that once Christ finished making the purification for our sins as high priest, that He took a seat next to the father. His work of purification for his people was finished and he was able to sit and commune with the father. Whereas the sacrifices of the old covenant and the law were never ending. They went on and on and on, never able to complete the thing that they had set out to do. Jesus single self-sacrifice on the cross was completely sufficient to satisfy the father. Where all the blood of bulls and goats could never do it. There's more about that in chapter 10. And I'm going to leave that to whoever preaches chapter 10. Uh, So we'll keep going. Um, If we look back again at verse 2, we'll see the third point that the author brings to mind. And that's that Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. Now, I would stand to reason that if we think and believe that Jesus is our high priest that we're also believing that he's highly capable to minister or to serve in some holy places somewhere. But if we look back over to chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, we're going to see that the author makes very clear and direct which holy places Jesus actually ministers and serves in. So let's read it. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says here in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it says here that Jesus goes behind the curtain into the holy place on our behalf. This language of of a curtain and a high priest should remind us of the old covenant system that God had established with the Jewish people. Uh, God had saved the Jewish people out of Egypt. He had called them into a new covenant with himself. And part of that covenant uh, was that they would keep the law he gave them. Um, Part of that law called for, you know, it was based out of a thankfulness and a gratitude for the salvation that he had already provided but part of that law called for for priests and it called for high priests to atone for the people's sin it called for uh, for atonement for the breaking of the very law that God had given them so while a high priest could atone for specific sins or uh, why a, a regular priest could atone for specific sins excuse me the high priest would atone once a year for all the unknown sins the things that Maybe they just hadn't realized they were doing wrong. Um, so when the high priest did this, what would happen was he would take the sacrifice. He would go into the tent where God's presence dwelt. He would go behind the curtain once a year to the Holy of Holies, and he would pay for the sins of the people with this sacrifice. That being said, it's clear in Hebrews that although although this specific holy place mentioned in, in verse 2 Sounds a lot like that holy place in the earthly tent. Christ did not enter into the earthly tent. We will see in a few verses that he actually was not qualified to enter the earthly tent as a priest. Because under the old covenant you had to be a Levite. Therefore, we must conclude that the true tent as it's mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8 is speaking of heaven speaking of the real thing the the dwelling place of god while the tent on earth was set up for uh, set up with human hands our passage here says that the lord set up this true tent it's there that christ sits at the right hand of the father interceding for us for his people i want to make clear here too though that the word true by calling The the tent of heaven, the true tent, is not to say that the earthly tent was in some way false. Um, The author, by calling it the true tent, is saying that it's the better one. Uh, You know, nobody would disagree that, that heaven is greater than earth and that the things of heaven greater than the things of earth, right? That's basically the point here. But as it's mentioned before, the whole main point of all this is that Jesus is our high priest, So because Jesus is a greater high priest who in turn offered a greater sacrifice, he must also serve in a greater tent than the earthly one. So to recap the recap, Christ is our great high priest who serves in the heavenly tent, seated at the right hand of the Father after offering his better sacrifice. And with these specific arguments in hand, we, we move forward to our next few verses where we're going to see a not so subtle point be made by the author. Uh, verses 3 through 5, under the header of the foreshadowing of heavenly things, we will see just what I'm talking about. So let's read verses 3 through 5 once again. It says here For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts Now, the author of Hebrews tells us in the section that the old covenant, the covenant that Moses enacted with the priest and the sacrifices and the law and the tent. It's all just a shadow. It's a copy. It's a it's a veiled look at the greater things that were to come. Every bit of it would be replaced by something greater. The argument for Christ ushering in these new and better things has already been started from these first two verses and from the previous seven chapters. Since Christ being high priest is the main point, his priesthood is the starting argument for verses 3 and 4. If you'll look at verse 3 with me again, we'll see it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So the author chose his words carefully here and he did that to reveal the the unique nature of Christ's priesthood. You see, he says that if Jesus is a high priest, he had to offer God something. He didn't say some things. He said something. As we said earlier, the goal of a high priest is uh, to give an offering to God to appease the wrath of God against sinners that they may draw near to him. While the Old Covenant here is is marked by many priests giving many sacrifices, Jesus' priesthood was greater. He, as the sole high priest, provided the greatest something that could ever be given. He offered his very own sinless body and, and his very own blood on the cross. He died his life given for ours, for our sin, so that God's wrath towards our sin would be settled fully and finally. And then he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave as a guarantee that the sacrifice he gave was accepted, that it was sufficient, that it was enough. This sacrifice was greater than all the sacrifices offered under the old covenant because it put away sin forever. It put away sin forever for us who would believe in that sacrifice. Christ offering for sin now made all the recurring sacrifices of the old covenant completely unnecessary. It did once for all what could never have been achieved previously. So his sacrifice, his priesthood is better. Verse four reminds us again that this high priest and this sacrifice are also greater because they were established under a different order. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Christ was not qualified to serve as as a priest or a high priest under the old covenant because he was not from the line of Aaron he was not a Levite but that didn't stop him from offering the better sacrifice as a high priest this is why it was important last week we heard that Christ was a high priest of the order of Melchizedek that he was made a high priest by an oath from God something that no Levite could ever say Jesus could not accomplish our salvation under the old covenant could not do it because the law and the sacrifices were not enough to cleanse us wholly from sin. There had to come a new way. There had to come a new high priest with a better sacrifice. It's this conclusion that leads us, or it leads the author to the bold claim of verse 5. He says here that uh, the many priests of the Old Covenant he said that they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The Old Covenant is described as a shadow for multiple reasons. Firstly, it, it foreshadowed the coming of the New Covenant. Uh, it looked ahead to, to the New Covenant that would come. But it was also a shadow because it was never really meant to be the real thing. The purpose of the Old Covenant was to bring God and to bring man together while revealing man's need for a better savior, a better high priest, a better sacrifice. But the covenant was unable to bring God and man to full reconciliation. It couldn't fully bring us together because one of man's inability to keep the law and two, because of the law's inability to keep the man. It couldn't change man's heart. The law could not keep man, uh, Excuse me. The law could not keep man because the law was a solution of the hands. It is said to do this or to not do that. But as we know now from the word, the sin goes deeper than the actions of man. It goes deeper than the hands. Our actions start in the heart. And the word teaches us that each and every one of us has a hard heart towards God. That each and every one of us needs to be made new. Each and every one of us is in need of a heart change. The numerous priests of the Old Covenant could not change the heart of man. The gifts and the sacrifices mentioned here in verse 3 could not change the heart of man. Those sacrifices and priests could not change man's heart even when they were presented in the tent where God's presence dwelt, even if that tent was constructed just as God had commanded, according to the pattern shown on the mountain as verse 5 says. And all of that is because the shadow of the Old Covenant was always meant to point to the true substance of the new. The numerous priests of the Old Covenant shadow would be replaced with the substance of a great high priest in Jesus. The, The many sacrifices of the Old Covenant shadow would be replaced with the substance of a spotless sacrifice of Christ. The law of the Old Covenant shadow which revealed sin and brought about death, would be replaced by the substance of a greater law founded in grace. The, the tent of the Old Covenant shadow, where God was in the midst of the people and yet separated by the tent's veils and the, the outside of the tent, it would all be replaced with the substance of heaven itself, where there were no veils, where we'll be with God. And finally, our hearts of stone would be replaced with the tender heart of flesh that are alive. God's plan was, was always Christ, even at the enacting of the old covenant, because the old covenant was not a mistake. It was, it was meant to be a shadow of the substance to come. Because the old covenant was meant as an interim solution that anticipated a greater covenant to come, the rest of the chapter is, is pretty much dedicated to that new and true solution. Uh, we're calling this section now, the new covenant promises. Uh, verses six through 13 is where we're going to see that. The new covenant promises. So let's read verses six and seven again. Uh, if you'll look there with me, it says here, six chapter six or chapter eight, verse six says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry it is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, now in in normal fashion, just as the author has done through the previous seven chapters, he promotes Christ as better in all things where Moses had mediated the old covenant that was a mere shadow. He says here that Jesus has a better ministry. He has a better covenant uh, enacted with better promises. Jesus' ministry uh, or his service is that he applies the new covenant promises and the blessings of that promise to his people, to those under that new covenant. We'll see these promises in a moment, but before we get there, we must look at the truth of verse seven. In this verse, we see with clarity that the old covenant is completely inadequate. It was unable to fully bring God and man together. And the reason that our author makes it so clear that the old covenant is no good to us now is because he's trying to remind these Jewish readers that there's no better place to turn for hope than Christ. They can't look anywhere else. They can't go back. To look back at the Old Covenant as a a potential answer would be like us waiting in line for ice cream at McDonald's only to find out that the ice cream machine is just as broken as it was the last time we tried. (laughs) Church, we don't have to hope in something that's broken. We don't. We have something much more sure in 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 the New Covenant that God has provided us. We have something sure in Christ. In the next few verses, the author provides us with the hope and promise of this new covenant. We are going to read through these verses again, uh, but before we do that, I want to stop and remind us here that these promises that we're going to read are different. They're different than promises that we have made. They're different than promises that have been made to us. Every time a promise is made, it's only as strong as The one who gives it. When we make promises to be somewhere or to do something, we have almost no control over the outcome. The promises may be kept or they may be broken, and trust can be lost and there's hurt. The Old Covenant was established on the promises of man and the promises of God made to one another, where God kept his covenant promises. We'll see here shortly that man did not. Let me encourage you again that these promises of the new covenant are different. Because God alone makes the promises of the new covenant. Because God is always in control. And God never lies. We can be confident in the word, in the promises and in his word that he will keep it. So let's read the promises with biblical faith-filled hope, as we heard today from our Advent reading. These promises are sure, so let's read it that way. Uh, Verse 8 and 9, together, let's read. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So as we see in these verses, our author begins to recall a passage of prophetic scripture from Jeremiah 31, I think verses 31 through 34. But before he begins to recall that passage, he reveals to us that the fault of the old covenant lied with the people of the old covenant their hearts were warped by sin and they were unwilling to obey the law of God they were unwilling to keep the promises that they had made but God was faithful to respond as he had promised he would he allowed them to receive the curses due their sin he allowed them to receive what was necessary for their rebellion having No concern for them, as it says here. He allowed punishment to come upon them for their sin, as he said he would. But in gracious fashion, just as we read, God proclaims not only a new covenant, but a different covenant. And he proclaims it with the very people that have failed in the past. Other places, we would find out that this new covenant is not only for the Jews, not only for the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but it is also for the entire world that God would graft in Gentiles as well, those who have, were not under the old covenant. So we can read this now, these promises, knowing that it's ours too. So let's read verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, they say, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So we see this new covenant is different because it comes with promises to finally change the heart. To change the mind and to bring about the full forgiveness of sin. The very thing that the old covenant could not do. These new covenant promises are fulfilled completely in the gospel. And we can be encouraged here that although the passage of Jeremiah was written as a promise in his future. We read it now in our present. That although we may run into sin. And we may, we may see our brokenness before us, and we may be discouraged by our flesh. We can rest assured that this word is true, that God is keeping His word. For the believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is writing His laws in our minds, and He's writing it on our hearts, and He's causing a change in us from the inside out. As 2 Corinthians 3:18 puts it, he said, the Holy Spirit is now transforming us and changing us into the image of Christ. It says, from one degree of glory to another. That means that we are being made more like Christ. He is purifying us and, and working in us sanctification. He, he is making us more like Christ. And Titus 3.5 puts it very clearly as well. It says that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So through Christ's saving work, God has forgotten our sins and is dealing with them mercifully now. And he's doing this so long as we have faith in Christ. And so long as we have faith that that Christ's sacrifice was enough, that it was sufficient. And through Christ's work, he is not only regenerating us but he has regenerated us he has made us new he has renewed us he's given us new hearts in christ so we can believe that today even as we face sin and things in our lives that are discouraging but those aren't the only differences between these covenants as verse 11 shows us there's there's a greater hope in the new covenant the old covenant hope was that israel would be a prosperous nation and that they would have land and that God would fight for them when they faced their enemies. To keep that hope alive, those under the Old Covenant had to instruct their neighbors, their brothers, how to follow the Lord under the law. Oftentimes, because of the sin of man, that instruction of the Lord was sectioned off and given only to those who were deemed worth it. Those, those that were great in man's eyes. The weak and the poor were often neglected even though God's law had very specific direction on how to take care of them. But the new covenant's different. God says here that those under the new covenant will know him. This isn't speaking of a magical moment of understanding that God gives. It's speaking of the future reality of the hope of the gospel, that one day we will dwell with God and he will dwell with us. Then there will be no need from, for each one of us to learn from one another who the Lord is. And in verse 11, he promises that he's going to make himself accessible to all people, the greatest to the least. And we know, like I said earlier, that he opens that up even to the nations, not only the Jew, but also the Gentile. As Ephesians 2 says, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that was between us. So he takes it upon himself to care for the people of every status, drawing together all who enter his covenant by faith. Verse 12 shows us that the way that God brings about this new covenant and the way that he enacts these promises is through showing mercy and grace towards sin. And we know here today that, you know, God is a just God. He cannot simply let sin go unpunished the only way that he could the only way he could treat sin graciously and mercifully and yet and yet pay the penalty for sin was through the sacrifice of Christ and he did that through the cross that's how he dealt with our sin graciously so it's because of the cross that we see our sins covered it's because of the cross that we have our hearts and minds changed and it's because of the cross that we have an eternal hope To be with the Lord forever when we, uh, whether we're great or whether we're the least. And it's because of the cross that we see the old covenant made obsolete. Let's read verse 13 one last time. Verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we see that when the new covenant is made, the old is made obsolete. This doesn't mean that the old wasn't purposeful for a time. It just meant the time had come when the old had fully served its purpose. It was at the cross that the new covenant was enacted. Thus, the old covenant shadow was ready to vanish away. Making way for the new substance, the the new covenant. The old covenant was made obsolete because the true and the better had come to take its place once for all. But there would be no new covenant without a new sacrifice. There would be no new covenant without a new high priest to give that sacrifice. To enjoy these promises of the new covenant, we we had to have someone bring it about. That one is Jesus. It's Jesus. He... He encourages us today that we can hold fast to him. Uh, The author encourages us today that we can hold fast to Christ and that we have much reason. He's given us reason after reason as to why Jesus and everything that he brings is better. It's better than the shadows that were previously served. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He brings the better promises of the new one. Now we may not have previously been under the old covenant, right? None of us, none of us had to keep the law and realized we weren't keeping it. Um, but surely we have all served something other than Christ that we thought was better. Whether it's been money or a career, a significant other, an addiction, we've all seen what it's like to give our lives to something that is less. Than perfect. Those things don't satisfy. They leave us hungry. They leave us thirsty. They leave us looking for something more, something better. They leave us empty, seeking something to fill us. Church, we can hear today that there is only one Savior who can satisfy. We can hear that there's only one who is better in all things. There's only one hope that will last. And it's all founded in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ. We can hold fast to him knowing that he's keeping the promises made in this new covenant. Let's keep from going back to the floppy disks of our lives. Let's hold fast to the new and the better. See through the gospel God has provided us a great high priest who mediates a new covenant so that. We can leave the obsolete things behind. So don't go back. Don't go back to those things. Let's let's cling to Christ and let's be transformed by Him. And just as this new covenant promises, we we can experience Christ forever in the hope that we have. And we can know that even when we fail, not to go back. And sometimes as sometimes we may, as our hearts run and and fail, we we know that Christ is there standing ready to forgive. To plead his blood on our behalf, interceding for us for uh, between us and the Father now, for those of us who have not yet placed faith in Christ, I would ask you to consider today what you 've heard. consider your place that you are a sinner, that your heart is just as these old covenant members were your heart is wicked it 's broken it 's in need of fixing god i mean your your heart is sinful at the core and consider that god is a just god he's unwilling to forgive sin without a sacrifice and consider jesus who has already died to pay for your sins as the perfect sacrifice and consider jesus who rose from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was enough that his payment for your sin was valid that it was complete And consider Jesus the high priest who is ready to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And consider Jesus his superiority, that he sits in heaven with the Father. He's ready to plead his blood on your behalf. Consider him. I would ask you today, if you don't know Christ, that you I would ask that you would lay your obsolete things aside. That you would lay them down and see that Christ is better that Christ is sufficient, that he He is satisfying. If you're here today and that's you and you want to talk about that, I would love to talk about that with you. I know Pastor Jimmy and Pastor Bob would do the same uh, after service. But church, let's, let's give glory to God. Let's give glory to God because he has provided us a miraculous salvation. He's provided us a better savior, a better covenant. He's provided us Jesus. Let's praise Christ and let's cling to him because he is better. Let's don't run to the things that we know are obsolete and that have failed us before. Let's pray. Father, God, you are good and you are kind and merciful. God, you have provided for us in every way. Lord, you have given what is better. Lord, you allowed the old covenant to, to stand so that we could see clearly what you have brought to us in the new. God, you have given us Jesus so that we can no longer search and we can no longer look for things to fill because he does. God, we pray that you would help us to see how much better Christ is. Let our hearts be captivated Lord, let our minds be changed by your word we thank you father that we have nowhere else to look for salvation than christ help us not to run away help us not to run to those things that we know are obsolete help us cling to christ in jesus name amen